Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read the verses in, in a minute, but I want to give you, as I do sometimes, kind of a quick review to start out this morning. We have been talking recently about something called the kingdom of God, which is something that was very much on Jesus' mind when he came in his preaching ministry, and um, obviously something that's very important in our lives, and we need to figure out what this is, and we have defined the kingdom in this way, and we're kind of fleshing out this definition as we go on. But the kingdom of God, and pretty soon you'll be able to say this, hopefully, you probably can already, but the kingdom of God is God's rule over God's people in God's place. God's rule over God's people in God's place. And last week we began looking at this passage in Matthew seven, or 5 through 7 called the Sermon on the Mount. And we saw that, that this passage, starting in Matthew 5 here, this long sermon of Jesus, is, is really kind of like a constitution for the kingdom of God. It describes how God's people are to live under his rule, what our lives should look like. And then last week we also had to take kind of a quick detour. And I had to ask you a question that we needed to get answered at least partially at that time, and that was when is the kingdom? When is the kingdom of God coming? When is it happening? When is it here? And we learned last week that it is here right now in a real but partial form. And that in the future there will be a day in which God's kingdom will take on its final and eternal form. If you want to find a place where that is stated very clearly, you can go to the book of Revelation, and it says there at one point, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. If you know Handel's Messiah, you know those words feature very highly at the end there. That is the end of, of, of the age when the kingdoms will kind of be melded and God's kingdom will cover the earth. But right now we live in a, uh, as, as Pastor Ben used to say a lot when he would preach, a now and not yet scenario. It is now here, but it is not yet in its final form. But this morning I have another quick question for you because we need to answer this before we look at our scripture today, and that is where is the kingdom of God? Believe it or not, this is a lot more complicated question, and it's going to take us several weeks to put some pieces in this to answer it ultimately. But right now I'm going to give you a very simple partial answer that you probably won't disagree with a whole lot, and that is this. God's kingdom is intermingled with the world. God's kingdom is, is mixed in with the people of the world. We do not have a, a separate geographical area that is like the home base of the... We, we don't have a country, right? What would we call it? You know, Christiania or something. We don't have this. We don't have a, a country that is, our, that, that is the home base of our kingdom. Um, and, and we are scattered among the nations. And so God's kingdom, although we will argue later on that it does have a place, this place is not a concentrated location. We kingdom people who are in the church now are commingled with the people of the world, people who are not in the kingdom. And so I want us to think today about the challenges and the opportunities that come from this, from the fact that we are commingled and mixed in with the world, because that's what Jesus is going to talk about before he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go ahead and look at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, 13, I'm going to read four verses here and then one verse over in chapter 6. Jesus says, you are, talking to his followers, talking to the kingdom people, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Skip over just for a second to the first verse of Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Uh, now, I superimpose these verses on each other for a reason. Uh, they're both, of course, in Jesus' sermon, and they come pretty close to each other. But as most of you have painfully learned, as we interact with the unbelieving world, especially as we interact with people who are somewhat hostile to Christianity, probably the most common criticism we face in the church of Jesus Christ, the most common charge against us, is that of hypocrisy, right? We're a bunch of hypocrites. We are play-acting. We're pretending to be all holy and righteous when in reality we are nothing but. We are anything but. And a lot of you know how frustrating and hurtful it can be to hear those words because you may have heard them from family members who reject your faith. You may have heard them from your own children. You may have heard them from your siblings. Or, and these people, these people know just how imperfect your life can be, so it really stings. Or you've heard it from people who, who maybe were in a church that you went to, either here or somewhere else, but they had a bad experience and now they've just kind of decided to give up on God altogether. Or maybe you've heard it or seen it on, on social media somewhere. Somebody's accused you of being self-righteous or hypocritical and it just, it just broadsided you, right? Because let's face it, it's a tough charge to answer. How do you answer the charge of being a hypocrite? Because almost by definition you can't answer it with words, Right? Words don't help because when you're accused of being a hypocrite, people are referring to your actions, not your words. So there's very little you can say to defend yourself, and it doesn't seem fair. Now let me give you a little bit of encouragement and, and assure you that sometimes it's not fair. Sometimes it's not real. Sometimes it's unwarranted. Because you know what? The world knows what a hypocrite is. And most, of the, of, uh, most Americans, at least, know a little bit about Jesus, and they know that Jesus talked a lot about hypocrisy. And so they know how to push the buttons of Christians. They know how to get us to stop talking about Jesus, and they can do it by calling us hypocrites. It works. So they'll just throw that charge out there when they get uncomfortable or when they get convicted about something they have seen in your life or in their own. So sometimes it's unwarranted, but you know what? Sometimes the charge is at least partially justified. And when it is, it is often because we have mixed up part of Matthew 5 with part of Matthew 6. And it's the parts that I read. Notice how Jesus, in one case, says this. When he's talking about good works in Matthew 5, he says we are to let our light shine before men. But then in chapter 6 he says, beware of doing your righteous acts before men. So is Jesus changing his tune here? Or is there a difference that we're supposed to pick up on? Well, one difference, obvious has to do, uh, one difference obviously has to do with, with motivation because it's, it's possible, as Jesus indicates in Matthew 6, 1, to do righteous stuff just to make yourself look good. Now, we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. But for now, I want you to notice this. If, if you look down into chapter 6 and you kind of scan what Jesus is talking about there, you don't have to do it. I can tell you what's there, but you can also look down if you want to. But I want you to notice this, that the righteous acts in chapter 6 are are what we might consider today to be religious acts. They are things like prayer, um, fasting, giving to the poor. In Jesus' day, 
all those things were considered indications of someone's religious devotion, okay, their spirituality. We would say today their piety. That's what pious people did. On the other hand, the good works that Jesus is talking about back in chapter 5, he doesn't define so clearly, but given what's coming up in chapter 5, these works are more likely to be acts of kindness, acts of generosity, forgiveness, integrity, honesty, and Jesus says that these are the things that should be the calling card of God's kingdom people, not an open show of religious devotion. Okay, so let me give you kind of, a, of an easy example of this, all right? If you go to a restaurant tomorrow or today or whenever and your waitress does not know Jesus, she will probably be a lot less impressed with the fact that you visibly prayed before eating your meal and a lot more impressed that you forgave her for the mistake that she made when she was taking your order. And as a matter of fact, if, if you do the first one but not the second one, you've probably done some harm to the cause of Christ in the process. If you really want to freak her out, do what I've seen a couple people do, and if she's not too busy, ask her if she has a prayer request of her own that you can pray for. Okay? Don't do it because you're being showy. Do it because you care. But this is all just to reinforce a principle that comes out here, which is that it's, it, it is our good works, our loving actions, if you will, that mark us as kingdom people when we're interacting with the world, not the religious things that we do. Not that we shouldn't do those things. We need to do those things. In fact, Jesus flat out assumes that we will all throughout chapter 6. When you do this, when you do this, when you do this. It's just that that's not what our witness to the king looks like outside when we're interacting with the unbelieving world. Okay, so let's go back and look a little more carefully. Now that we've kind of maybe straightened that out, let me go back and look at verses 13 to 16 of chapter 5 here because Jesus' teaching is very practical here, but he's using figures of speech. So we have to kind of figure out what he means. What does it mean to be salt and light? These are, are really two principles that work together to show us how we as kingdom people need to interact with the people who are not in the kingdom, salt and light. Let's talk about salt first. In the ancient world, salt had a couple different uses. Um, it was used sometimes as a seasoning, like it is today, to make food taste better. But it was, it was thought of even more back then as a preservative that, that would keep food from going bad. And it is likely that, that I mean, Jesus may have both things in mind, but, but it's likely that this is the way that Jesus primarily uses it here as a preservative. So, so, so don't miss the power of what he's saying. It's pretty intense. Jesus is saying here that the world, if it's left alone, will go bad. It will become rotten. The world is like a hamburger sitting out in the sun, Okay. It will eventually spoil, and that is because the world has been contaminated by something. It's been contaminated by sin, and sin, if it is left to do its work unimpeded, will cause the world to become a pretty horrific place. The old commentators have a word for this. If you look up uh, some of the old books about this, they call it putrefaction. Isn't that a great word? It's a nasty-sounding word, but that's what is going on in your workplace. That's what's going on in your school. That's what's going on in 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 your social circle, maybe. And in the bigger picture, it's going on in the institutions of the world. And you see it. It's happening in the government. It's happening in entertainment. It's happening in our culture. It's happening in education. In the absence of some kind of, of preservative that can slow down this process, the world is going to putrefy. Now, into this scenario, Jesus injects his kingdom people. That's you and me if, if we're in Christ, if we're trusting in him. And he tells us, you are the salt of the earth. Not you are one of many kinds of salt. No, you are the salt. 
You are the only thing that is holding back the ultimate spoiling of this world and of your workplace and of your school and of the places where you go is the presence of kingdom people in the midst of it. People like you, if you know Jesus. That's it. You're the salt. You're the preservative. You are what is holding back the darkness. So you might say that for the people of the kingdom, our role in this world is that of preservation. Slowing down this process whereby the world is going bad. But Jesus says this only works as long as you keep your saltiness or your taste. See, if salt loses its taste, and this could happen in the kinds of salt they used back in Jesus' day, it loses its power to preserve because it loses its distinctiveness. You know, when you taste food with salt on it, you can tell the salt's there, right? It tastes different than the egg or the potato or the meat or whatever it is you've got it on. Salt is distinctive. It's different. So to be salty is to be distinct from the world or just to be different from the people around you, right? You can't be salty if you taste the same as the meat. When the salt becomes indistinguishable from what it's supposed to be preserving, then it's no longer any good. And when a Christian loses that, which makes him different from the people around him, he has lost his power to cancel out the rotting effects of sin in his world. So Christian, if you ever get to the place with your friends at work or at school or in your social circle or or, or whatever, and they begin to say to you, hey, we know you're a Christian, and maybe us not so much, but isn't it awesome that there's really no difference between us? That's not a good thing, okay? It may make you feel good in in some way, but that, that means you're probably doing something wrong. Now, you might ask, what should distinguish me from those around me? What should be different? We already said it isn't acting religious, right? Although that's a shortcut some people try to use. So is it maybe these acts of kindness and generosity and compassion that we already talked about? Yes. But let's admit it. Christians do not have a monopoly on kindness and generosity and even self-sacrifice. Non-Christians do all sorts of nice things pretty regularly in, in many people's case. So, so usually, <clears throat> usually the thing that, 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 that makes us make a difference, the difference comes, it, it becomes noticeable either over the long haul because people see that these things are not just one-time events in our lives, but they're part of our character. Or the difference comes when things get tough and it's not easy to be kind and generous and forgiving and honest. If you look down through the rest of chapter 5, and we'll get into this more the next time we're together, but you'll see that there is some pressure here. There's some stress. There's strong temptation going on. There's persecution. There's, there's unpleasantness between people. There's verbal abuse. There's unfair treatment going on. And the kingdom people, the kingdom people turn out to be the people who can be kind and gracious and generous and honest and morally uncompromised not merely when every, everybody's getting along and there's no relationship drama and the business is doing well and, and the budget is balanced and our kids love their teachers and our in-laws are being sweet and understanding <clears throat> and, and nobody's saying nasty things about us. You know, it's easy to be kind and generous in those times, right? But what about the other times? <clears throat> the times when there's, when there's tension in the family the times when there's some big misunderstanding, the times when people are being treated unfairly or our friends are starting to turn on each other or unfollow each other. 
talking about each other behind their backs, and people are taking sides, and the boss is getting unreasonable, and nobody wants to pick up that extra shift because everyone's too stressed out, and everyone's offended each other, and nobody wants to apologize first, but somebody has to. These are the times when, when there's a serious need for some salt because things are going bad. And it, it, it's the difference that you and I as kingdom people make at those times that can actually draw people to Jesus. Now, how do you maintain the difference? How do you, Jesus says, keep your saltiness, keep your, your taste. How do you do that? It doesn't say here, there's a little bit of a hint over in Luke's gospel, because Jesus says the same thing, almost the same thing in Luke's gospel, but he says it in, in a different context. In Luke, right before Jesus says salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how can it be restored? He says this, he who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Which is, huh, there, there's an indication there. There's an indication to me that our, our saltiness, our distinctiveness, our taste is connected somehow to our commitment to Jesus. And if we let that relationship with Jesus start to slide, if we neglect our time with him, if, if we neglect spending time with God's people worshiping together and kind of bouncing off each other and sharpening each other, fellowshipping, if we have an area where we're refusing to obey Jesus' direction and we're being stubborn with him. If, if other things in life start to take first place in our hearts before him, then our lives will begin to lose that special salty taste, and we won't have the same power to preserve the world around us. But notice this. <clears throat> we don't automatically lose our saltiness by hanging out with the world. We don't automatically lose our saltiness by having non-Christian friends and with hanging out with people that are outside the kingdom. I know there's tension there, okay? I know, and it, it, it takes place in all of our lives. It especially takes place in the lives of our young people, our teenagers, most of whom come to the second service. A few are here. But, but there are people in our lives and in their lives, our young people's lives especially, who have the potential, peers, have, have the potential to be a very bad influence and whom their parents would just assume not have them hanging out with. And it is true that spending too much time with the wrong people can negatively impact a person spiritually. It's true. It happens a lot. So yes, parents, you have a point. Okay, young people, your parents have a point. But in the long run, <clears throat> what really takes away our saltiness is not rubbing shoulders with the world, but letting other relationships take the place of our relationship with Jesus. So ultimately, if we want our kids and grandkids to keep following Christ, it is more important to help them cultivate that regular relationship with God than it is for us to keep them away from the wrong people. Jesus was always hanging out with sinners, wasn't he? And forever being criticized for it. But it was the time that he spent with his father that kept him from losing his edge. I read an account one time of a guy who was walking through what's called the Valley of Salt in the land of Israel. It's down south of the Dead Sea where a lot of the salt came from back then. And as the, as the man came across like a sharp precipice or a cliff, he could see the patterns that were made by the salt deposits over the years, and he managed to break off a little piece. He decided he was going to try to taste it. So what he found out was that on the inside, close to the rock itself, it still tasted very salty, but the farther that he got from the rock, the more tasteless the salt became. So, so maybe it helps to think of it this way. Your, your saltiness as a Christian is determined not by how much you shield yourself from the world, but how close you stay to the rock. And the rock in this case is Jesus and your daily, ongoing, 
hour by hour, day by day, regular disciplined relationship with him. That's not the stuff people see. It doesn't really need to be the stuff people see. But it's the engine under the hood that drives your life and makes you truly different from other people because it makes you more Christ-like. Okay, that's the salt part. What about this light of the world thing? Let, let your light shine before men. Well, the world needs light, right? In fact, let's be honest and just cut right to the chase. The world needs the light of Christ, which means it needs the knowledge of Christ. It needs the knowledge of Jesus. It needs to know who he is. It needs to know what he's like, and it needs to know what he's done. And, and just like the world will spoil and go bad if it's left alone, it will also go dark. It'll get farther and farther from God, and it will lose what knowledge of him that it has left. I want you to think about something. Um, all the people in the countries all over the world, the most heathen places on earth, they all came from Noah, didn't they? Somewhere along the line, their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a God person and knew the God of the Bible. What happened? Everything went dark. It may have taken a while to happen, but they got farther and farther from God. They lost the knowledge of God. And this is happening in many places around our world today still because God has been replaced some places by a false God, some places by the state, some places he's been crowded out by the love of money or power or pleasure or whatever. And, and the light that comes from people knowing and responding to their creator is growing dimmer and dimmer in a lot of parts of this world, maybe even kind of here. Jesus says we are the light of the world, the light of the world. His, we, his kingdom people, are the ones, the only ones, who can keep that darkness from happening. And when we step into the void, Jesus says, with good works. And again, think acts of kindness, compassion, generosity, along with a commitment to honesty and integrity. Things that are highlighted in the rest of this sermon. And when we do these things, even when good works are not in season then people will start to see the light. We will be involved not just in preservation, but in revelation. We will be revealing Jesus to the world. Jesus says when this happens, they will glorify your Father in heaven. And eventually the way they glorify our Father in heaven is not just to say, wow, I guess there's a God after all. Go God. That's okay. But really how they glorify our Father in heaven is by coming to know Jesus, by putting their trust in him for forgiveness and new life and coming into the kingdom themselves. Now you might ask, okay, then can I just do these good works and then kind of keep my mouth shut about Jesus? Would that be okay? Or do I have to let people know at some point that I'm a Jesus person? I don't know, what do you think? I think at some point we have to let people know that Jesus is part of our lives. Now, that's scary sometimes. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it is. I'm gonna tell you kind of an extended story that comes from my new, my new favorite magazine. It's called The Voice of the Martyrs, and it comes from the organization of the same name that, that, that supports persecuted believers around the world. And this past month, there was a story in there about a guy named Bassam. Uh, I don't know if that's his real name or not, probably not, but Bassam is a local policeman who lives in one of the countries on the Arabian Peninsula. Bassam came to know Jesus back in 2005, actually. And then for the next eight years, like the majority of, of Muslim background believers around the world, he kept his faith secret, talking about it just with a few people. Once in a while, he'd sneak into church. And one day in, in 2013, Bassam came to the man who had led him to Christ with an announcement. He said, I've been spiritually sleeping all these years. I can no longer keep my faith in Christ to myself. So from that day on, Bassam 
began to let his light shine before men. The first person to reject him was his wife. Then she made sure that his co-workers in the police department all knew that he was now an infidel. He was called into a meeting with his commander who told him he could believe whatever he wanted as long as he didn't share his faith while he was on the job. Okay, but his wife didn't give up. She kept trying to get him to turn away from Jesus. She pressured the higher-ups in the department to discipline her husband, and they did. They scheduled him for multiple shifts in a row, continuing to threaten him if he were to share his faith in Christ with other people. Bassam's wife will not divorce him because of the benefits that go with his job. But she has limited his access to their daughters. She has had her brothers beat him up. She has filed legal complaints against him for blasphemy. When he was brought before the judge, his answer was, I believe in Jesus. The judge said, that's okay. The Quran teaches that Jesus was a prophet. Bassam said, no, I believe in the Jesus who is God and became human. Bassam has been thrown in jail several times, repeatedly beaten by family members. If anyone kills him for his faith, the maximum punishment is two years in prison. But recently, when his father was hospitalized, Bassam explained the gospel to his male relatives who came to visit his dad. That earned him another beating. But one of his sisters suddenly asked him for a Bible. Since then, she and one of his brothers have come to Christ, as has one of his daughters, even though he rarely gets to see her. A few months ago, Bassam was collecting cans along the roadside for extra income when his brother-in-law jumped out of a passing car and began to beat him, breaking a tooth and bloodying his head before bystanders stepped in. The brother-in-law was arrested, but Bassam refused to press charges, saying to his attacker, I love you, and the Lord tells me to forgive. This prompted another of his sisters to ask about Christianity. Our brother Bassam continues to share his faith openly, knowing that each day might be his last. Now, Maybe nobody here would blame Bassam for the eight years that he kept his light hidden under a basket. But ultimately, it is the nature of light to do what? To shine. And the Holy Spirit is going to look for opportunities to put us in positions where we will make the greatest possible incursion into the darkness. And what matters most at those times is not how safe or convenient it is for us, but how great the need is because there are people around us who don't yet know Jesus and are headed for an eternity without him. And I guess one of my points in sharing this story with you, and there are thousands of other stories like this, by the way, is to say, look, if this guy Bassam can do it in his situation, we probably can too. See, there, there are two ways we can kind of fall off the horse and really lose our power as God's kingdom people, Jesus says. One way is, is just to kind of hide out in church, right? Hide out with our Christian friends, go to Bible studies, go to camp, go to retreats, get really knowledgeable about the Bible, listen to Christian radio all the time, get really religious. You might say get really salty, but then never get out of the salt shaker, right? Just stay safe in the Christian bubble. The other wrong option is to get out there into the world and engage with people who don't know Jesus, but in the process to end up becoming exactly like them. So we become worldly as opposed to becoming disengaged. Those are the two ways to fall off. And honestly, if you think about it, neither of those options is really that costly, at least socially. And depending on how you grew up, and depending on who your friends were, and depending on your church background, and depending on if you're an extrovert or an introvert, and a few other things, I think all of us really lean toward one or the other. 
Either we lose our saltiness and become worldly, or we hide ourselves away from the world and refuse to let our light shine. And you know what? There's a payoff with each one of those options because no matter which one you pick, you'll probably get popular with at least one group of people. But Jesus calls us to do something different. He calls us to own our kingdom identity as both salt and light. In other words, he calls us to a deep devotion to him and a deep engagement with the world at the same time. And he knows better than anybody how costly that is. Because guess what? When you start to do that, both groups are going to misunderstand you. See, when Jesus showed up on the scene, when Jesus came back in the first century, the Jewish people back then basically thought of themselves as God's kingdom people. If you said, who are God's kingdom people, they probably would have said, it's us, it's, it's Israel. And, and they were all kind, they were stuck in the middle of the Roman Empire, and there were all these Gentiles up in Galilee and people all around them, and there were all these strategies for dealing with the non-Jewish world of their day. There was a group called the Essenes you may have heard of. What they did was they basically hung out, together, hung out together as like a community around the Dead Sea, probably had great devotional lives, didn't impact the worldly society at all. We appreciate the fact that they kept the Dead Sea Scrolls safe all that time for us, but they didn't make a dent for the kingdom in their world. Then there were the Sadducees and the Herodians on the other side. These are people who compromised so much with the world that they completely lost any ability to make any difference for God. There was one in-between group, and that was the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted to impact their world for God in a way, but what happened was they got Matthew 5 and Matthew 6 mixed up. They ended up wearing their religiosity on their sleeves and neglecting the good works that should have been leading people to trust in their God, and that made them hypocrites. So into this world comes Jesus, who lived the saltiest and shiniest life that was ever lived uncompromising in his life of holiness and yet eager to hang out with all the wrong people so that he could lead them into a relationship with his father. And because of that, he paid the price. Because when you actively engage with the unbelieving world without becoming like that world, it's the only way to positively impact your world for the kingdom, but it's also a recipe for conflict and for pain and for rejection. And Jesus experienced all of that to the point of being put to death for his troubles. As John tells us, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Let's face it, nobody likes to get lit up, right? The more light there is around us, the more people see our faults and our scars and even our sins, the ugly things. But, but for the ones who are willing to come into the light, Jesus is ready to forgive and to heal through his redeeming death on the cross in our place. And he sends us, his kingdom people, into the world as salt and light so that people will know who he is in all of his frightening differentness and also know that he is ready to receive them when they're ready to come into his light. Let's pray. Lord, as, as I look out over this room, there are probably 50 people here, but, but they represent probably 30 or 40 different, different 
scenarios at work and school and home and family and, and, and wherever they interact with this world. Father, what a powerful thing it would be if, if all of us were able to keep our saltiness and at the same time stay engaged. Lord, um, we're all bent one way or the other, which means we have to make an effort to do the other thing. And so, Lord, for those of us who are comfortable getting out there and, and mingling with the world, help us to remember to keep our saltiness and then give us the courage to speak out. For those of us who are, are more comfortable hanging out and getting all spiritual and not ever, hang, and not ever going out there into the world, Lord, give us the courage to do that. Help us to be deliberate about the opposite thing that we're inclined to. And Father, I pray that you would also bring people into our lives, put us in places, superintend providentially the places that we go and find ourselves and the people with whom we come into contact so that we will make the most difference, that the salt will not just fall to the side of the plate or on the road, <laughs> but that it will find the place that it needs to go. And I thank you for this group of people and pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that they might make a true difference as kingdom people in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.